This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Adamant. When it comes to mystical materials that have cross-pollinated the fantasy pop culture spectrum, none is more famous than adamant. Or adamantium, or adamantine, or adamantite. Because that stuff sure does have a lot of names, doesn't it? It's kind of ironic that the name of the stuff is so changeable, seeing as how it is primarily known for being firm, unbreakable, and immutable. But the irony doesn't begin and end with fantasy pop culture. In point of fact, adamant, we're just going to keep calling it that, has a very soft, malleable, and mutable history. Yes, history. Most people would be surprised to learn that adamant was, and is, a very real thing. Actually, it is, and was, several real things. It's complicated. The trouble is it's kind of hard to break down adamant. And yes, pun intended. Because adamant is one of those things that just gets little throwaway mentions here and there. In fantasy, in literature, in mythology, even in Dungeons and Dragons, it's kind of hard to figure out where adamant first appeared. Its most prominent definition came in the third edition era, where it was codified as a dark, non-magical metal that could be used in place of iron or steel in weapons or suits of armor. Items made of adamantine, it was adamantine in that edition, items of adamantine were much more durable than their iron or steel counterparts and also much heavier. But adamant appears to have entered the game much earlier. In the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition Dungeon Master's Guide, it was briefly listed as one of several unusual metals from which weapons and armor might be crafted. It was also expanded a bit in a few supplements of the same era, including the Arms and Equipment Guide and THE Definitive Work on Dwarves in the Forgotten Realms, Supplement FR11, Dwarves Deep, by Ed Greenwood himself. Actually, Dwarves Deep went into a little detail about the name, explaining that the word adamant refers to the metal in its pure form, whereas adamantine was an alloy made by dwarves. Dwarves loved to make massive, heavy suits of indestructible armor from the stuff. It made them all but invincible, even if it rendered them almost immobile. Dwarves in adamant plate armor were called waddling cauldrons because they looked like... Well, they looked like fat, waddling cooking pots. But what's more interesting is what adamant used to be called in D&D, before it was adamant. See, the description of adamant has been pretty consistent throughout the history of D&D. It's a jet black metal, extremely hard, extremely durable, and quite heavy. It is preferred by dwarves and is used to make indestructible plate armor. While the first edition Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide seems to omit adamant by name, it does mention jet black extremely durable armor. Specifically, it notes that whenever the heroes discover magical armor of a certain level of power, the GM should assume the armor is made of black meteoric iron. And in later editions of D&D, some descriptions have implied that adamant is meteoric iron. That is, iron for meteors. Space iron. And if you listen to our episode called Smithing, you'd know that meteoric iron is how people like the Egyptians got their hands on iron daggers and tools before we knew how to smelt iron, and how people like the Inuit managed to make iron spears and lances without having any source of natural iron ore. And without meteoric iron we'd never have gotten the Iron Man. 
No, no, not Iron Man. We're not talking about Robert Downey Jr. And we aren't talking about the Black Sabbath song either. A song that, incidentally, has nothing to do with billionaire industrialist Tony Stark. The song is actually about an astronaut who travels to the future and discovers that mankind is doomed to destruction. Unfortunately, the journey inadvertently turns him into solid iron, and he is unable to tell anyone what he saw. And when his attempts at communication are ignored, the titular Iron Man flies into a rage and destroys humanity, becoming the very apocalypse he foresaw. And while the idea of time-traveling robots inadvertently causing the disasters they are trying to prevent sounds like it belongs in a movie franchise starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, the entire story was actually written specifically for the song by John Michael Osborne and Terrence Michael Joseph Butler. We might know better as Ozzy Osbourne and Geezer Butler, the lead vocalist and bassist respectively of the 1970s British heavy metal band Black Sabbath. Apparently, after hearing the guitar riff for a song the band was working on, Osborne commented that the song sounded like a big guy stomping around in metal boots. This prompted Geezer Butler to write the aforementioned story. However, the Iron Man we're talking about is a small statue that probably wasn't made by Tibetan Buddhists, that probably isn't a thousand years old, that probably wasn't looted by Nazi agents in the 1930s, but was most definitely carved out of a meteorite. See, back in 2007, this 10-inch statuette depicting an ancient Buddhist king, Vaisravana, appeared at a German auction. The statuette was made of solid iron and intricately carved. It had apparently been looted from Tibet by Schutstoffel agents. Now, Schutstoffel is a German word that means defense squad. But you probably know them better as the SS. The SS were the elite military arm of Adolf Hitler's National Socialist German Workers' Party. That's right, the Nazis. So what were they doing in Tibet? Well, that's actually an interesting story. In 1929, Heinrich Himmler was appointed by Adolf Hitler to head the SS. And Himmler was a bit obsessed with the ideology of the Nazi party and proving that the Aryan race was the superior race, destined to rule over all of mankind. Himmler dispatched SS agents all across Asia to search for the true origins of the Aryan master race. And in India and Tibet, they looted many mystical and religious artifacts to that end. This is the origin, by the way, of certain stories about how the Nazi party was obsessed with the occult and magical artifacts, and how that made trouble for folks like Henry Jones Jr. and Captain William Joseph Blaskowitz. But we digress. After scientists examined the so-called Iron Man, they concluded that it was carved from a bit of debris from a meteor. And in fact, the specific type of iron in the statue was rare enough that they could pinpoint the exact meteor it came from. It came from a meteor that exploded and scattered debris across the glaciers covering northern China and Russia some 10 to 20,000 years ago. Pieces of the meteor were discovered along the Chinga River in 1914, and so many pieces of this meteor have been found since that you can still buy bits of it today for under $200 if you know where to look. It's called the Chinga Meteor, if you feel like looking into it. The scientists further discovered that the statue had likely been carved sometime in the late 20th century. 
Yes, sadly, the Iron Man was a fraud. But it really was made out of a meteor. And the story is not actually that ridiculous. See, Tibetan Buddhists have been carving stuff from meteorites and tektites since the 7th century of the Common Era. They even have a name for this stuff. It's called Thogcha, from a Tibetan phrase that means lightning iron. Oh, and by tektites, we don't mean the spider-like enemies that have plagued the land of Hyrule since 1986. We mean spheres of mineral glass that are formed whenever a meteor hits the ground and melts the sand and rock around it. Those are called tektites. But we digress. It's funny that we ended up talking about Iron Man, though, because honestly, most geeky folks in the know don't think of adamant as black, meteoric iron smelted by dwarves at all. Honestly, thanks to Stan Lee of Marvel Comics, people think of adamantium as an indestructible silvery metal grafted onto the skeleton of James Howlett, a.k.a. Logan, a.k.a. Wolverine. Though, actually, Wolverine is not really thanks to Stan Lee. Lee just created a place for him. See, early in the 1960s, Marvel Comics editor and writer Stan Lee and artists, including Jack Kirby, had taken their superhero comics in a different direction. The comics had become focused more on character-driven stories and interpersonal conflict than on action and adventure. And this focus was due to some important changes that had taken place in the comic books industry. See, comics became remarkably popular during World War II in the United States. They provided cheap, portable entertainment to soldiers overseas. But after the end of the war, superhero comics went into a decline. Instead, comic books began to focus on crime stories, horror stories, and romance. But just as happened with Dungeons & Dragons later, several controversies arose about the connection between comic books and juvenile crime. Fearing government regulation after a prominent psychologist testified before the Senate about the impact of comics on impressionable children and teenagers, comic publishers instituted the Comics Code Authority. The CCA was essentially a form of voluntary self-censorship, banning depictions of gore, violence, sexual content, and also any disrespectful depiction of authority figures. That pretty much destroyed all of the crime drama, horror, and romance comics. And so the comic publishers began bringing back the superheroes. One reader, in a letter to DC Comics, dubbed the period the Silver Sixties to refer to the fact that DC was reviving all of its aged comic book superheroes. The name Silver Age stuck. Meanwhile, Marvel and Stan Lee were cranking out new characters to fuel their character dramas. But Lee had grown tired and frustrated with the idea of inventing new origin stories for every new hero. He wanted one origin that could explain whole bunches of heroes. And with America entering the Atomic Age, and the idea of radiation and mutation capturing the imagination, he went with the idea of random genetic mutations giving otherwise normal people superpowers. And that became the basis for his series X-Men The Strangest Heroes of All. Now it is probably just a sheer coincidence that a 1953 book called Children of the Atom also featured random genetic mutants being sheltered at an isolated school from a world that feared and despised them. At least, the inspiration has never been officially confirmed. Wink wink, nudge nudge. Regardless, the X-Men didn't quite capture the comic crowd, and the franchise faded into obscurity until 1975. Then, 
writer Len Wein and artist David Cockrum teamed up to revive the franchise. They created new characters to join the team alongside a few of the old holdovers. Among their new characters was a Canadian mutant with the ability to regenerate from injury. The character, Wolverine, had also had the indestructible metal, adamantium, grafted to his bones by a mysterious covert agency. The surgery, which he could only survive due to his healing powers, also included long, dagger-like retractable claws that extended from the back of his hands. Wolverine's mysterious background and even his appearance were shrouded in secrecy and gradually revealed throughout the series, and he became the most popular character in what became one of Marvel's most successful comic franchises to date. But that hardly counts as fantasy. I mean, it is a fantasy, but it certainly isn't part of what we call the fantasy genre. And even though X-Men made adamantium a household word, assuming you live in a particularly geeky household, another famous geeky franchise also had its own spin on adamant. And it preceded both Dungeons and Dragons and the X-Men. And interestingly, it depicted adamant as neither a ferrous black metal, nor a silvery smooth metal. Heck, it wasn't depicted as a metal at all. See, adamant makes an appearance in the land of Middle-earth, according to the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien in the Ur-example of the fantasy genre, the Lord of the Rings series. It just doesn't make much of an appearance. It's one of those things that Tolkien only occasionally mentions, but one of those mentions is prominent enough to be memorable. Galadriel, the elven lady of Lothlorien, wears Nenya, the adamant ring. See, if you somehow don't know the story of the Lord of the Rings, it basically comes down to this. There was this elf lord, Sauron, and he was a magical craftsman. So he made a whole bunch of very powerful magic rings, and he gave them away as gifts to the rulers of the elves, the dwarves, and the humans, so they could create great works with them. It seemed like he was just being a nice guy, but really he wanted to rule the entire world. He secretly made a special ring for himself that would allow him to bind and control those who wore the other rings. The one ring to rule them all. The human kings were corrupted and enslaved by Sauron as rays. The dwarves lost or destroyed theirs gradually. And the elves kept them and used them and resisted Sauron's will. Because Tolkien thought elves were just the baddest of badasses. Anyway, Galadriel ended up with a ring named Nenya. It was made of silvery mythyl, and in it was set a translucent white stone, like a diamond. A stone made of adamant. Yep, in Middle-earth, adamant is an indestructible gemstone. You see what we mean when we say that adamant has a bit of an identity problem? But that's not just fantasy's fault. See, Adamant has always had an identity problem. Yes, Adamant is a real thing. Sort of. The word Adamant comes from the ancient Greek word Adamantos, and it means unworkable, unyielding, or untamable. And that word carried over into Latin. It became Adamans, and it gradually morphed through medieval Latin and French into Diamant. And from that we get the word diamond. Mystery solved, right? Adamant is diamond, right? 
Tolkien is right. Gygax and Marvel were just making stuff up. Well, no. Because from adamantos, we also get another word. The word is adamant. It means stubborn and hard-headed. But in the Middle Ages, it also became the name for a black, iron-like metal with some very strange properties. See, as early as 600 BCE, folks in China discovered this strange black metal that was attracted to iron. For whatever reason, if you put this naturally occurring metal near iron, it would get stuck to the iron. This was lodestone. Lodestone is actually a type of iron oxide called magnetite. It's basically just an iron ore that also has natural magnetic properties. And what's interesting is that geologists aren't sure exactly how magnetite gets magnetized. See, generally, the way to make something magnetic is to put it near another magnet and heat it up. And to understand how that works, you have to understand what magnetism actually is. Magnetism is a byproduct of electricity. When electrical charges start moving around, they exert a force on other electrical charges. Now, the most common source of electrical charges are the aptly named electrons, which are tiny particles that surround atoms in a swirling cloud. And electrons are always spinning. It's that spinning that creates magnetic force. So why isn't everything magnetic? Well, first of all, because most electrons are naturally paired off with partner electrons, and those electrons always spin in opposite directions. So their magnetic forces cancel out. Now, iron is a special case. The electrons in iron tend to flit around from atom to atom in a massive sharing arrangement. They aren't paired up. They're just floating around in a big soup. So why isn't all iron magnetic? Well, because the free-floating electrons are all spinning helter-skelter in all sorts of crazy directions. To get any sort of strong magnetic force, the electrons have to cooperate by spinning in the same direction. And you can get the electrons to line up by subjecting them to another magnetic force. That's right, magnetism is contagious. If you stroke a piece of iron with a magnet, you can make it magnetic. Or if you put a strong electrical field around it, you can also make it magnetic. The problem is, the electrons only stay lined up for a little while most of the time. But if you heat the iron before you apply a magnetic field and then rapidly cool it, you can get the electrons to lock into place. Long story short, to make a permanent magnet, you need a source of heat and a source of magnetic force. Now. Just about every chunk of rock and mineral and metal on Earth has, at some point in the past, been melted. Once upon a time, the Earth was a molten mass of liquid metal and rock. It gradually cooled and solidified. But that's not all. The surface of the Earth is constantly being recycled. It's just doing it very, very slowly. See, the surface of the Earth floats on a molten sea of magma, and it is fractured into many individual sections called tectonic plates. It's kind of like the surface of a cracked egg. And the plates are very, very slowly grinding against each other and pushing each other down into the magma. As the plates' edges are submerged, they melt down into magma. Meanwhile, magma is constantly finding its way back to the surface. We call those volcanoes. And there, new rock is formed as magma bursts forth, becomes lava, and then cools to become rock. 
so we've got plenty of heating and cooling going on. As for magnetic force, well, the Earth is actually a giant magnet. It has a core of solid iron, and that core is spinning continuously. The problem is, it's an extremely weak magnet. That's why your refrigerator magnets stay stuck to the fridge instead of being pulled down onto the ground. It is a strong enough magnet, though, that if you take a magnetized metal needle and let it spin freely, the needle will line up with the magnetic force from the Earth's core. And that's how a magnet works. But the Earth isn't a strong enough magnet to magnetize iron oxide. The current theory is that magnetite, lodestone, is magnetized when iron oxide gets struck by lightning. The lightning provides both the intense heat needed to lock the magnetism in and a powerful enough electric charge to get all of the electrons spinning in the same direction. Now, lodestone was discovered around 600 BCE, but around 1000 CE, the Chinese discovered that you could make a compass with it. Start with an iron needle, rub it with lodestone, and then let the needle spin free and it would always point north. And sometime around 1200 CE, the compass started showing up in Europe as well. Scholars debate whether it arrived via trade from China and through Persia, or whether it was independently discovered in Europe. It hardly matters. The point is that once it became clear that the strange black metal could make compasses, it was given the name Lodestone. L-O-D-E. Being a Middle English word for guide. But before that, the strange black metal was apparently named Adamant, due to its hardness. And the reason it got the name Adamant? Well, no one seems to be quite sure. But, and we're speculating here, it seems as if people forgot that adamant was the root for the word diamond. But they hadn't forgotten that adamant was a thing. See, the word adamant shows up a lot in mythology and classical literature, going all the way back to the ancient Greek days. The titan Cronus wielded an adamant sickle against his father Uranus, and Perseus decapitated the gorgon Medusa with an adamant sword. The smith god Hephaestus used adamant chains to bind the traitor Prometheus. According to some myths, Alexander the Great protected his lands from the ancient giants Gog and Magog by building a wall of adamant. Virgil described the walls and gates of the prison realm of Tartarus as being made of adamant, and on and on and on. Regardless of why, though, the point is that the hardest most durable material known in any realm, earthly or fantastic, just refuses to pick one nice solid shape. For such a stubborn substance, it sure is wishy-washy. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>